Welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Lee Reddick, Executive Director, CIO Communities for CIO.com. I'm very excited to introduce and welcome Ed McLaughlin, President and Chief Technology Officer, MasterCard. Ed, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role. Certainly. Hello, Lee. It's so great to see you. Uh, so I'm run technology for MasterCard. And probably the two favorite things I have about my job is it is everything we're running today, the global network, security, the transactional systems, all the other services we provide to the customer. Really what, what MasterCard does is a technology company. But the other side is what we become is what we build. So we also have all the tech modernization and the things that we're doing to advance the state of the art. So it's a great job where every day you make sure all the things that need to happen are happening while you're still planning on what we build and what we're going to become. And I love this dialogue about talking about MasterCard as being a technology company. So I'm really interested in getting into some of the talks, topics we'll be talking about today, Ed. And I appreciate you joining us very, very much. We've really created this series to support the technology leader in their own tech and career journey. So the first question, and I ask this to everybody I'm interviewing, can you please tell us a little bit about your own career path and maybe provide some insights or tips on that road path? Are there any lessons learned that you'd like to share? I was talking to my daughter about this recently. And when I left university, I went straight into programming because I thought at the time I could have a challenging and rewarding career and not have to talk to anybody. So my first advice is whatever you think is going to happen in your career isn't pretty much what's going to happen. But uh, I've always been at this intersection of technology and commerce, technology and finance. And my early career had a set of uh, startup organizations that uh, were in electronic data interchange. We had a data modeling company that we took public. I had a first wave internet payments business. And I think all of those things came together and led me to MasterCard, where I was privileged to be part of the management team that came in as MasterCard was getting ready for our IPO. We originally started as an association, as a service provider to the banks that owned us. And in 2006, we went public as a company. It's just been an amazing story since then. And I think like many technology leaders, you're, you're constantly bringing those experiences you've had together for what happens next. And, you know, all of the work we did to enable things like digital and mo mobile payments, all the things we've continued to do to extend the network. It's really based on that skills and understanding you build across your career. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and, you know, obviously you've worked in a sector that's had to pivot dramatically over the last few years as well, too. And obviously, as you mentioned, first being a service provider, then to, being a public company, I mean, yeah. that's a huge transition. So I'm really looking forward to having some of those discussions. And I wanted to segue into the next question, which is to talk about MasterCard and the global reach of the company. You know, I met, I know many CIOs and I've just been at two conferences, one in the UK and one in Canada. And we've been talking a lot about data, data sovereignty, cybersecurity, but also really creating that meaningful product for the customer around the globe. So. Could you talk a little bit about your strategies as a business leader around building that global organization for business and customer engagement? Many things are so important. First, you have to be where your customers are. You have to reflect and understand your customers. And it's always a risk that you're doing really well in one corner of the world. And you think all of those patterns apply somewhere else in the world. So I really think of our technology in, in two ways. There's certain elements of technology which are truly transcendent a high speed, you know, incredibly reliable backbone to our network. You know, the ways that the transactions and messages flow because they all have to work together. So you make certain investments to make sure those transcendent things or those overall things are globally scalable and unbelievably good. 
But then you have to recognize the only things that are meaningful for people are how it works in their life, in their neighborhood, what's for them. So if you can marry those globally scaled capabilities that everyone wants and needs and make it profoundly meaningful for merchants running their business in that neighborhood, for consumers living their daily lives, for financial institutions with different needs around the world. So that that 16 digit MasterCard number I have works exactly as well as Manhattan as a 16 digit MasterCard number that we're providing to a customer in financial inclusion who's never been part of the financial system as we help bring that online. So that's really how, how we balance it. So we have tech hubs around the world where we have people who are working in the markets with the technologies in which the customer's there and we connect them or knit them together on a global basis. I, I think it's also important because, you know, proudly, what we do is really important. We're RegTech. So we work in 210 different countries and regulatory domiciles. We have 150 different currencies that we have to transact in and enable. And those requirements and how those requirements are changing and how that impacts the overall technology footprint we have, it's, it's one of the biggest topics of our time. It must be incredible, just as you describe it. I mean, having been at a conference in the UK and talking to some of the CIOs and leaders there from global companies, they were talking about how they're dealing with their data in the cloud and, you know, how they're almost having, not to silo it, but have a global plan, but then make sure yeah. their data is in, in one country in the cloud the right way and it serves the customer and the company. So it just must be so much more amplified in the business that you're in. Well, there's a lot of things we've been thinking about that. And, and you're exactly right. We have regulatory obligations. You have the tech, new technologies that you want to be able to take advantage of. Consumers' demands are shifting entirely as we're replatforming our lives into this digital physical convergence, which mm -hmm. is unlike anything that we've had before. So a couple of big parameters we put around this, one of which is you talk about, about cloud. Um, we had to take a view that we're not quite sure where we're going to be allowed to run. In some countries, regulators said you had to run in equipment you fully controlled because mm -hmm. of national critical infrastructures. In others, we can take advantage of third-party or public cloud compute. And it's not too hard to see in the future, certain markets may say you have to run in a given cloud environment. So when we looked at that, you take a step back and say, you wanna have really well-behaved applications. So the view we took is let's have a global network fabric where our private cloud and our public cloud are peered entities within it, and we can choose where to deploy our applications. It's a lot harder from an engineering standpoint, but if you get that right from the beginning, you're ready for those things you don't know quite what's going to happen, but have to be able to anticipate now. And the second big trend we're seeing is not only where you have to operate and run, like where you put your compute, Data and the rules around data have become such a topic of concern and opportunity. Uh, and well, I'm sure we'll get to conversations around AI and, and all the amazing benefits you can get from your data. But that's the other thing is our ability to say exactly what data we're getting, making sure that data enters our network inside the regulatory domicile that it belongs to, and then knowing where we're processing it. These are really hard problems. And having that understanding. So the long-term goal of having a global network with an intelligent edge that meets our customers exactly where they're doing business, and then being able to know where within that we can put servicing, compute, and persistence. It's the foundational architectures you put in place today, and then we'll see how that plays out over time. 
But the idea of, of, of being able to control where, what, and how you're using data in a way we've never had to before, like I said, it's going to be the story for the next decade. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I'm just, my head is going like, yes, no, I'm just listening along and just thinking about the complexity of what you have to deal with. And we didn't plan for this, that question, but it must be just so valuable too for your clients, because I'm sure as you're learning, and we just had a panel uh, last week at a conference with a service provider in cloud and, you know, they're talking about how they're really working with their clients and to help understand this. So it sounds like you probably have that same thing in place. And you know, I'm just going to pop over to the next question here because okay. during the pandemic, of course, you know, I'm sure you had to pivot and design, you know, different programs that you just spoke about around cloud and really to support the changing digital economy. I spoke to a CIO here in Canada about his brand and he said, you know, the day after they closed their bricks and mortar stores, their online ordering increased by 2400% every day, every day. And I was like, oh my gosh, how did you manage that? So. I would imagine with MasterCard that just multiplied up with all the people and the vendors using your card. So you talked a little bit about that already around your cloud solutions, but just how you manage that as a leader. And then obviously you touched on as well, that global financial inclusion globally that you're working on. So I um, would love you to talk a little bit about both of those things. Let me start, particularly because this is a leadership series. The way we dealt with the pandemic, it started with and all came down to our people. And one of the challenges, one of the blessings and the burdens of being a MasterCard is we do run national critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we had no opportunity to shut down. We mm -hmm. had people that had to throw switches and pull cables and, you know, a letter from the Treasury Department saying whatever you have to do to stay open, stay open. So we had special considerations for how we had to operate through, um, which really required a lot of, I'd say, risk and sacrifice on behalf of our staff to come in during that time, which was such great uncertainty. And um, one story I have to tell, because we all talk about sense of purpose, sense of mission, it's important for our organizations. But when you realize we've got over 3 billion accounts on our network that people need to buy medicine, to get the food for their kids, to do what they have to do for businesses to stay in business, we need to be there for them. So one of the things we did is we weren't sure if we had challenges in our operations or in our control center. So we took everyone who had worked those jobs within the last three years and we asked him to come in and work a shift. So if we needed him, almost like a reserve, we could call him up and come in. And every person said yes. So the, 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 the way we were able to come through it so well really did come down to that sense of purpose, mission, and dedication because people understand their jobs are important. And that's exactly what we saw. We, you know, people always talk about you know, massive accelerations coming forward. We were seeing a long-term shift of a couple of percentage points a year from the physical world to the digital world. When the first quarter of full pandemic lockdowns globally happened, we had that crossover where we had more digital transactions than you would see in the physical world. And that behavior has persisted. So it was a massive acceleration of the business. So that's where all those things, no one I think exactly had global pandemic in their plans. But the ability to say, how much reserve capacity to have? How much of a burst can you have? How can you expand what you do for those unintended consequences? All of that planning came to the fore. And, and for us, when you move from a digital to a physical world, you know the iconic Christmas sale where the line's around the corner? Yeah. I always say in the digital world, they all hit us at once. Right? Yeah. I mean, nobody's queuing up. It's all coming at you. So we did a lot of work to add capacity to anticipate and stay ahead of that demand. But I really 
do say, and I always say, for anything you do as a technology strategy, it really is coming down to a people strategy and their commitment and dedication. And I think that's what, for many organizations, I've talked to so many organizations, that's what really shown through that very, very difficult time for all of us. I really appreciate you sharing that. That must have just been such an intense time. But to, to you know, so many CIOs right now are talking about focusing on people and their people, even when it comes to cloud and everything, the way we manage data, the way we manage these transactions. But I, you know, what a phenomenal strategy to have and to have that kind of commitment from your people um, and just to talk about the volume of people, yes, that needed stuff from medicine to you know, farm supplies or whatever drives them in the minute of that need uh, is truly inspiring. And I, and I really appreciate you sharing, sharing that with me, Ed, that was, that was amazing. So I talked to a lot of CIOs around the globe and um, there's been a trend in the last like little bit around the CIO being both the technology leader and the business leader. So I had the uh, CIO of the National Bank of Canada, Julie Levesque, to talk about that and say that, you know, the CIO must be um, uh, bilingual. So, mm -hmm. and she was like, both business and technology. And if you don't have business, go get a business degree. Uh, had a CIO in the UK talk about the CIO being orchestrating the business. So, you know, basically being like the conductor and, you know, bringing business together and understanding all those pieces like you would in an orchestra. So. I wanted to talk about that from the standpoint of your role. You just talked about some major, major implementation of tech and people and bringing that together. But I would love to learn your role as a business leader and how you, you know, build that alongside technology. Well, it's funny. A while ago, we had a kind of legendary CEO who loved to say how MasterCard was a technology company. And I always say, well, MasterCard is a technology company and we run technology by the transitive property of equality. Therefore, we're running the company which is also how you learn formal logic only gets you so far in life. But I, I think there is a real truth to that where most companies I would say used to have products that were supported by technology. It was more of a back office. And I think the reason why so many people are saying actually it is a technology company is with this physical digital convergence with this digitization of everything. Now our products, our services, our delivery channel to our customers is through technology. So it becomes important in a very, very different way that never was before. So not only digital, the new medium by which I think almost all of us do business, I think technology is the seven league boots. That's where this applied research can massively transform and accelerate what we're doing through data, through processing, through analytics. So you've gone from being, you know, a cost center to the primary asset of the organization. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't mean you get to spend more, but you do think about your assets differently than how you think about cost centers. So I think our job, our, our obligation to the company is because we're the folks who actually understand how it works. The only way you can truly have a strategy, the only way you can map out the way forward in this progressively digitizing world is if you have that deep and profound understanding, both of what the business is trying to accomplish and the assets you actually have, how the technology actually works. And when things get off the whiteboard and somebody's got to do something, that's us. And I see so many times that the ability to intervene or inform from an engineering standpoint, how it can lead to the actual success of the business outcomes we're looking for. So I love the bilingual line. And, and I always say it's like our role and responsibility to be able to think left brain, right brain, or, or on, on both sides of the equation. There's really no other job in the business that does that. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that that is so true. And it, certainly I'm hearing it from, from anybody I interview now that that business aspect is so connected. And then that pivot from companies now to being tech companies and really understanding what drives the technology innovation, the implementation. You have a lot of CIOs talking about, you know, the customer, I'm sure it is in your, well, it is in your space because we talked about this already, the customer, the end user being the most important. And almost working yes. from that space coming backwards to looking at how the technology can implement um, about a month ago, I was very honored to uh, interview Manfred Boudreau-Demma, who's the first inaugural CIO at NATO. And, you know, he talked about being a business leader prior to coming into this role and then coming into this role and being a business leader, but also having to work with 31, you know, soon to, soon to be 32 countries around the world on a consensus basis and having learnings from that about looking at your North Star as your guiding principle, but understanding business so dramatically so you know how to negotiate and navigate those circumstances. I, I can I can hardly imagine having 31 now, 32 different constituencies under such an incredible set of external pressures, if you you know, and 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 everything that NATO is dealing with. But I think that is something we learn across our careers and something I probably got wrong early, where for all of the technical engineering, social engineering is an equally important part of success. And if you understand it, but you can't explain it the right things aren't going to happen. And if you can't understand, you know, so often we see it that the people asking the question don't understand the question and the people who are answering the question don't understand what they're asking. And it is that translation that becomes so essential. I really appreciate you uh, describing that. And yeah, I agree. Social engineering, that, that is a good big part of, I think, these roles nowadays, anybody's role, really. Yeah. Um, so now I want to pop over and talk about innovation. Um, again, we've been talking a lot this year about Gen AI and LLMs yep. and how prevalent they are in discussion. So I'd love to just have you share your views on Gen AI and LLMs and perhaps some of the ways you're looking at deploying or maybe what you're seeing in market from from other other people, other CIOs, people who are talking about it. <laughs> well, I do have, I do feel compelled to repeat my, my comment from the CIO conference that, that, that you just had, that I think one of the greatest things about Gen AI and LLMs is we got to stop talking about the metaverse, right? We all live through these cycles where there's something profoundly important is changing. It captures popular imagination and it's sorting out both from what is just the undifferentiated hype from profoundly meaningful and actually really, really cool capabilities that are finally blossoming and coming to the core. Every CIO on this call has been through cycles of AI. You know, I'll go back to when we were seeing the amazing ability of the machine learning back propagation and TensorFlow and things of that early, earlier iterations when you could move, move from rules-based systems to neural network systems and things like that. So the one thing I remind people, we've been applying AI in our network for years. Um, one of my favorite platforms is Engineering Marvel we have, which is our decision management platform, which is uses a rules parameter and 13 bit different AI engines and techniques to, to find fraud in the systems, to fight fraud. And this year, we'll have stopped over $10 billion worth of fraud from coming through the system that we couldn't have before. But when you talk about understanding the problem or understanding their customer's objective, we probably started by saying, how do we stop fraud? What we found is the biggest benefit we could have is by letting good transactions through. So when we started applying a lot of the powerful AI techniques, we stopped three times more fraud, but removed six times the false positives, which is all of us trying to do something legitimately and having a much better experience around that. So it's already had a massive boon to our business. So when something like Gen AI happens, 
every CIO gets all these proposals where people are trying to figure out what they could use it for. I, I was joking, maybe a decade ago, every proposal I got was on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, why? Wouldn't a database work better? Yeah, but this is on the blockchain, right? I think the same thing. So avoid that temptation to like, you know, pound screws in with very expensive socket wrenches and ask yourself, what's the 10Xer? What's the thing that we could never do before? What's the hard problem we've been trying to solve that suddenly we might have a way to go after? So some things I'm really enthusiastic about are things like code assist and developer productivity. And, and, and we're seeing some good things there. The way you can deal with complex amounts of unstructured data and information, like for customer support or other things like that, there's a lot of complexities to our network. So helping people understand and navigate that, we see real, real value there. So what we're looking at is what are the hard problems we've always had that these particular techniques can bring most value to and then layer on top of that and apply for that. And like everyone else, we're taking things like provenance of data very, very seriously. You know, what was the, what are the models trained on? Do we layer over with our own information? How do you get the right foundational models around that? Um, so with a very clear eyed view of how to manage the inputs and outputs of the systems, we think it's going to have a very, very important impact on all businesses, not as something which replaces everything else, but it's another amazing tool we have to solve hard problems that we couldn't have before. And that's how I really see it fitting in. I love that answer. Thank you so much for that. And I, and I think, you know, what I'm hearing from many tech leaders as well is what you just said. Not as many, not as many as I would think, but that idea that you've already been working in this space, you've already been working around machine learning, and now you're building on to that just to create better outcomes, but you're doing it in a way that's controlled. And, you know, you look at the ways you can improve some of your services and how that will work. So um, really fantastic. Another thought on that, and this yeah. really, I, I just wanted to get, bring it, because it always comes back to the people. We all know yeah. that, right? Tech yes. doesn't do anything, people do it. And one thing which is interesting to me, and there's some, some great work coming out of like University of Washington on this, on the human computer interactions, because I think we've, at least I took a, a simpler view early on, that this was just something that augmented current jobs. Not as much as how it would profoundly change the job. And you know, if you think about a magazine, right? The job of being an editor or a fact checker is a lot different from being the author. And, you know, writers notoriously make lousy editors. <laughs> so when we think about these powerful new techniques, I think we have to think about not so much as it augmenting current work, but how does the work change? Now, I absolutely do not believe in a dystopian sort of jobless future. I think every CIO will say, my lists have lists of all the stuff I wish we could get to. So I think it's something that we can aid and accelerate, but we have to keep a real eye on how people are interacting with these tools and how it'll actually change the type of jobs they're on. Because that awesome engineer who can never do a code review because they just rewrite everything probably won't benefit it as much. Interesting. Well, I thank you for adding that on. And I really thank you for joining us today. This has been a really informative interview. I hope we can pick up in 2024 and do another one. Thanks so much for joining me today, Ed. Well, thank you. It's been, been a real pleasure. And I certainly hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you. And if you want to learn, learn more about this interview or others, please visit us at CIO.com. Thanks again.